At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Coming up on episode 283 of Wheel Bearings, we've got the 2023 Nissan Versa, the Lexus NX, updates to the Polestar 2. How much does it really cost to use your electric truck as your home power backup? And the all-new Mazda CX-90. All that and more coming up next. This is episode 283 of Wheel Bearings. I'm Sam Abul-Samad. And I, I, am, insights. I know you forgot. I was like ready to jump in. I am Nicole Wakeland from um, Let's Go With Forbes this week. All right. And unfortunately, uh, Robbie sent me a note uh, a little while ago. He is not feeling well this morning. He's got a migraine, so he's going he's gonna to rest. Uh, so it's just going to be the two of us for now. We may have somebody else uh, joining us uh, partway through the show. Um, but uh, if not, then we'll try and get her on uh, at a later date. But for now, Nicole, yes. what have you yes. been driving? I am dri- I'm experiencing amazing this week. I am driving the Lexus NX. 350 F Sport. So I would not have associated the phrase experiencing amazing with Lexus That's, NX. Well, but it says it. See right here, I'm holding it up for Sam. See on the Maroni, Lexus, experience amazing. Oh, okay. Well, in that so, case, mm-hmm. it, if, it's, if it's written on the Maroni, it must be true. Absolutely. Um, but <laughs> truthfully, not so amazing. It's, it's, it's okay. It, it's not... Here's the thing. It looks fantastic. Like it's this, and I happen to have it in this beautiful bright red. I'm trying to look up and see what the color is, but it's this like brilliant bright red color that they have. It has, because it's the F sport, it has this sort of sportier interior and there's red trim on the interior. And it, it has this very sports car ish vibe um, in how it looks, not the interior, in how it, at least the interior. Yeah. The exterior, not so, the interior is very sporty. The exterior still has that gigantic, Spindle grill that I think is a love it or hate it proposition. Every time I bring it up, there's at least one person who says it's the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And then the next person says that is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Where do you stand? You know, it depends on which vehicle it's on. It, I think it, it works better on some vehicles than on others. Like I think, you know, the, the way it's done on the LC coupe mm-hmm. and convertible, I think it yeah. looks great on there. 
the RC is pretty good. Um, but on most of the crossovers, uh, I'm less enamored with it. Yeah. Well, and this is a crossover, so it doesn't, it's, it just feels, makes the front of the car feel so heavy. It's mm-hmm. so big. It's like everything just dominates in the front. I do like in the back, though, how the Lexus, the word Lexus is sort of spaced out. There's a word for that spacing, but it's not centered. It's centered on the back, but it takes up longer space than it needs to. Mm-hmm. It's like spread out across the tailgate. It looks kind of cool. Um, but so it looks great. I mean, the car looks great from the when you sit on the inside. It looks fantastic. It is comfortable. It has pretty heavy bolstering. So if you have a broader shoulders and a wider frame, you're going to find it a little bit snug. Uh, my husband found it a little tight for him because he's a tall guy. He's 6'3". He's got broader shoulders. It's a little snug for him. Um, it's a little tight on leg room, too. Like his knees sort of sort of hit the side, like the center console on the edge of the door. There's not a lot of room if you have really long legs. But it is comfortable, assuming that you're not too big for it. It's not a big guy's car. <laughs> Robbie, I feel like, would be squooshed in this car. I don't think he would like it as much because it's it's a little tight. But it is comfortable. It has a relatively smooth ride. I drove it in and out of Boston over the terrible roads currently in the Sumner Tunnel, which is like nightmare scenario because they're redoing it. And it's a road in the loosest sense of the word. Um and it was very smooth and handled really well over pretty bumpy, broken, chopped up pavement. Where it doesn't excel at is power. There's just not a lot of it. Uh, this has a 2.4 liter turbocharged engine with an eight speed automatic transmission with 275 horsepower. And it just doesn't, it's not really responsive. Once you're up to speed on the highway, it's fine. It has, you know, you can easily zip in and out of cars and heavy traffic. But if you want a little extra speed, if you're going 55 and you want to go a little faster, you're going 65 and you want to go a little faster just to pass somebody who's slow or because you're trying to maneuver quickly over to an exit, it doesn't have a lot of oomph. It just is not ready to give that to you. And even getting up to that highway speed, if you mash the gas pedal in this, it's not going to set your heart racing. So it's not super responsive. Driving around town, you don't, you know, if you're in just city driving, you don't have that same kind of scenario because you're not normally taking off like crazy from a stoplight, but it's just not a very aggressive drive. So there's sort of this disconnect between the very sporty look of the interior, which is super appealing. and makes you feel like, and even saying F sport, it makes it feel like you're getting into a sporty crossover. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you actually start driving it, not so much, not so much. Um, I did like that the infotainment screen the Apple CarPlay takes up the full screen. I like that it goes all the way across. Some of them, it, depending on the, the the year of the infotainment system that you have and the vehicle that you have, it may or may not take up the entire infotainment screen. Right. This Sometimes goes, it'll only take like two-thirds or three-quarters of it. Right. So you, it's just the way it's like it's that Sam territory. He could explain that. Somebody asked Sam if you want to know why, but it doesn't take up the entire screen. This one goes f- fully across the screen, which is kind of nice because it's – Great when you're following directions. And it, I think it's actually a really good thing on this new, those latest generation Lexus and Toyota infotainment system, because with CarPlay or with Android Auto, you can see multiple things on there at once. So you can have your media player controls and your map on there at the same time, which with the, the built-in stuff, you can't. You can have your map or your media controls. But not or both. your other controls, but nope. not two of them at the same time. You must make choices you do not have to make now. Yes. You can win <laughs> this lets you have everything all at once. Have your cake and eat it too. So I was a fan of that. I did like how that worked. Um, and the F Sport adds some fun stuff, like you get paddle shifters on the steering wheel. Even the you know the grill and the bumper are slightly different. 
Um, you get like performance dampers, which might be why I found it so smooth in those horrible, awful roads in downtown Boston. Um, you get some other little snazzy. It's really mostly about looks and not so much about performance. I think other than the dampers, adaptive aerial suspension, front and rear performance dampers, those might be the two big things that would change how it drives compared to one that wasn't the F sport. But again, it's not a dramatic difference. It's not like you're suddenly going to be like, Oh yeah, this is a sporty little crossover, but it's fun. It's it's, it was fun to drive uh, comfortable. It has a decent little bit of cargo room in the back seat. You know, you, you're not going to be uh, moving your dresser in the back of your NX, but it does provide plenty of room for a lot of groceries. And, you know, you could bring small amounts of stuff to the dump, a couple bags of mulch. You could easily fit in there. Sam, don't need a pickup truck, probably. I don't even know, with maybe. the rear seat up? I think even with the rear seat up, if you put oh. the mulch, I bet. Now I feel like I need to go to buy Home Depot, but who's buying mulch in January? <laughs> I bet. I know you could definitely put it like lengthwise. I bet you could even put two bags of mulch, one right next to each other, straight in, in the back. Okay. So it's a, <laughs> that's my official mulch measurement system, which I'm <laughs> trademarking later. Um, I think that that, that it's a, so it's actually, it's usable. It's a usable amount of space. It's more usable space than in the back of the Defender, the two-door Defender, Defender 90, mm-hmm. that I had a few weeks back. Where when you put, there was a license plate cover. And when you put that cover in like sideways, that was the entire depth of the cargo oh. area was one license plate. So I'm like, you're not using this unless you're folding the seats down. This one was back, bigger, weirdly, than what the Defender offered behind its rear seats. Interesting. Yeah. So, um you know, I know that the the F Sport stuff that they put on various Lexus models. You know, it's kind of equivalent to what you get like with Kia with GT line versus GT, or mm-hmm. uh, Ford with ST line versus ST, and um, right. you know, BMW has M and they have their M cars and then their M Sport, which is basically you get kind of the look of the high end performance models but with minimal to no actual performance upgrades. Right. Yeah. Which and is, if you're really someone who's into performance, it is a little bit, but let's hope you're going to read what you're getting when you buy a car. Yeah. But, you know, you see F-Sport and your first impulse, I would think as a com- consumer is, oh, it's a sporty version. It's got extra stuff that's going to make this more power, better handling, you know, faster, more engaging, all these things. It looks that it, it engages your eye more, but it doesn't engage you as a driver. I don't think really more than the ones that are not the F sport. I do like how the interior looks. It's got a red interior. I'm a sucker for red interiors. It's gorgeous. For, for the average um, Lexus buyer, for the, the, the person who's going to be interested in buying a Lexus vehicle, do you think that they would care much about the, you know, the fact that F sport is just kind of sporty looking versus sporty feeling. No, for this, like if you're talking to Lexus LC or something, maybe a different Lexus buyer, maybe looking for something a little different, but for a small affordable in the grand scheme of luxury crossovers for a small affordable crossover, um, that's a luxury vehicle still. Um, I think you're looking more for the style and the look of things and you are for performance, you're probably just not buying this kind of car. There's other, you know, this is just, wouldn't be that. So I think the yeah, Sport Lexus has the RC, you know, right. for something that is similar price point. So you can get an RC right. sport or you can get an RCF, right. you know, which is got the big honking V8 engine and you know, it's, <laughs> it is actually fast. Right. 
See, so there's other options. If you really truly are looking for something that's that performance car, the NX is just not where you're going. If you're looking for an entry-level, more affordable luxury crossover, that's what you're looking for this for. And and part of buying, you know, a brand like a Lexus is the, you know, sort of aura of like, I have arrived, you know, I'm buying a Lexus. I'm not buying a Toyota, I'm buying a Lexus. And that makes it a little fancier. So by adding the F-Sport package, anybody who's getting inside your car is really going to think you got, it, it looks fancy. It looks, you know, it's like something special. So from that point of view, I think it's great. It's just all about style, which there's nothing really wrong with that, but it's not about performance. Okay. And um, how, how much did the uh, NX350 F-Sport cost? Um, all totaled up with everything. It was, let's see, without, it was 46650 And then there were options on there. The F-Sport package adds alone adds $2,200, but all totaled mine was 55325 That's not bad. So it's, it's definitely luxury I mean, pricing. You know, for, for, yeah. I mean, for, for a premium compact crossover, right. Um, you know, when you look at, you know, where the competition is, you look at, you know, an Audi or BMW, you know, like a, a BMW, uh, like an X3, I guess would, you know, would be in the right size as this and, or, you know, an Audi Q5, um, you know, they're, they're going to cost at least that much. Right. So it's not, it's not a crazy amount. Oh, and there's no one to compete with, but what do you think the uh, destination was? Uh, I'm going to say 1095. Oh, you were super close. 1075. Oh, I was over by 20 bucks. I know, but you were super close. So 1075. I, I, I was thinking 995 first. I think nah, I'm going to go for, you know, closer to 11. Yeah. So it is closer should've, to 11. Should have gone with my first instinct. Should've, your first instinct was the right one. But yeah, the, what makes it so, actually, it's not the, like I said, it's 2200 for the F Sport. But the other stuff that's on here, it has a bunch of upgrades. Like there's a 17 speaker Mark Levinson sound system that's a little over $1,000. They have that panoramic moonroof, that's $1,600. Um, there's a panoramic view monitor with lane, lane change assist and front cross traffic alert. That's a thousand dollars. So there's a couple of expensive packages on here, you know, in addition to, um, so you're getting a pretty tricked out car is what I'm getting at. It's not, you know, they, they've added this to make this a very luxurious version of the NX. So for 55 grand, I don't think it's that bad a deal. If that's the kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of had in some ways, similar but opposite of of the, uh, the <laughs> NXF Sport, um, and I actually only had it for a couple of days, um, mm-hmm. and I'll explain why in a minute. I had the Nissan Versa SR, the 2023 model, mm-hmm. uh, and so for 2023, uh, the Versa got you know can't, the, the current generation Versa came out in 2019, I think, and for 23 they gave it a, a mild facelift, uh, mid cycle refresh, so it's got a new New, mostly new front fascia, new grill. Uh, that's a, an updated version of Nissan's V Motion grill. It actually looks a lot more like the current generation um, uh, Hyundai Elantra. I was just thinking that, looking at it, I just pulled yeah. it up on the screen the, as you were talking. It does look like yeah, the Hyundai the, Elantra. The face looks much more like the Elantra. Yeah. Um, and you know, when back when I first drove the current gen Versa when it came out, um, you know, I was surprised surprisingly impressed with it uh you know for an entry-level cheap car i mean you can get the versa starting under sixteen thousand dollars so if 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 you want something that's affordable um 
and is also, um, you know, comes with a new car warranty and everything, you know, all, all the, the benefits of having a new car, you know, latest safety features and things like that. Um, the Versa is actually a really good choice. I mean, if you don't need, you know, something really luxurious, you know, it's, it's basic transportation, but it's, it's very solid. Uh, it, it doesn't, uh, you know, it, the SR is the sort of pseudo sportiest version of it, um, which, you know, is not saying much. I mean, it has bigger <laughs> tires, bigger wheels and tires. Um, and it, it has a slightly sportier look to it, especially with those wheels on it. Um, but, you know, it, it's not it's not particularly sophisticated, but it does what it does quite well. You know, it's got a twist beam rear axle, so solid rear axle. Uh, you know, not no independent rear suspension, things like that. It's got drum brakes on the back, um, but it offers you know surprisingly decent handling. You know, it's it doesn't fall all over itself when you go around a corner. Uh, <laughs> it's got decent ride quality. So, you know, given the relative simplicity of the suspension system. You know, it uh, it does a surprisingly good job of handling rough pavement. And it's funny, um, last week, you know, on a Friday morning, um, a colleague of mine who lives nearby, um, we were heading to a meeting uh, in, uh, in Novi. And so I picked him up, and, you know, a few minutes later, we were heading through downtown Ypsilanti. And he commented on, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, for, for a cheap car, this thing has handles these, you know, rough Michigan pavement surprisingly well. And literally ten seconds later, oh no, it hit a pothole, <gasps> and immediately the low pr- low tire pressure light came uh, on, the, uh, no. on the instrument cluster, and uh, and I could hear the hissing of the, the air escaping <laughs> from the right good. front tire. <laughs> and so we, I pulled over, um, we swapped the tire, put on the mini spare, um, and when I got to where our meeting was, I sent a note to the the guys at the fleet company and said, hey. You guys, you know, explained what happened, you know, hit a pothole, flat tire, put on the mini spare. Do you have a, a spare tire, wheel and tire you can bring over to put on this thing? And they didn't. So they, they came over. They met us back at my house um, after uh, after we got back. And uh, they took the car. They were going to take it to the dealer to have a new tire put on it. Um, unfortunately, the, t- the dealer didn't have tires in stock either. So I never ended up did getting it, getting the car back. Aww. But, you know, I, I, had a, I had a couple of days to drive it. And mm-hmm. like I said, I, I was really, I'm, I've always been surprisingly impressed with this current generation. The previous generation versus not so much. Yeah. This current generation, you know, I think it's a decent looking sedan. You know, it's got the same kind of styling language that you have on the uh, Sentra and the Altima, you know, the two next bigger uh, sedan. <clears throat> Excuse me. The two next biggest sedans in the Nissan lineup, at least in North America. <laughs> Um, they don't offer a hatchback version anymore with the current generation. They used to have the Versa Note and then the Versa Sedan. The the Note's gone, so it's just just the four door sedan. Um, you know, for a relatively small car, it's it's got decent rear seat room. I can I can comfortably sit in the back seat. You know, with the front seat set to where I would want it for driving, um, and I'm about five eleven, so it's. Uh, it's it's a very acceptable car. You know, it comes standard with uh, a, a touchscreen audio, um, a radio infotainment system that has support for CarPlay and Android Auto. Um, it has uh, some basic uh, ADAS features. It it has adaptive cruise control, radar adaptive Ooh. cruise control, which wow. 
on a car that costs barely over 20 grand. It's very impressive. That is. Um, you know, and blind spot monitoring and, and, and a few other features. Um, it does have a CVT uh, and there's uh, uh, a 1.6 liter uh, four-cylinder engine, 122 horsepower, 144 or 114 foot-pounds of torque, which is not much. But, you know, this car is also not particularly heavy. You know, it's, it's not, you know, this is not a sports car. You know, this is not a Nissan Z. You know, if you want a Z, buy a Z. <laughs> this this is your basic transportation. You know, if you have a teenager that's learning how to drive and needs some transportation, you want to buy them a new car instead of a used car because you want them to have some some safety features. Or you just finished school and you know you you want to get uh, you know a, a new car to do your commute. Uh, you don't want to rely on you know the ten fifteen year old car that you might have been driving through college. Uh, you want something reliable to to get you where you need to go. Um, then this is a really great choice. Um, and it's also available with a five-speed manual, although that's only on the S trim, which is the, the base level trim. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can live without a, a few features, um, you can get this with a five-speed um, and you know, have some fun with it. To, you know, to the degree you're going to have fun with something like this. But like I said, it's, it's, it's basic, but it works. You know, it, does what you, it does what you need basic transportation to do reliably. Uh, it's decent looking. You know, it's not hideous. Um, it, you're not going to be embarrassed to drive this thing. Um, and so I would, you know, I would strongly recommend this if you're looking for basic transportation and you don't insist on having a crossover. Um, yeah. If you want a crossover or something more crossover-ish, um, and part of the reason I think why they dropped the Versa Note hatchback, they have Nissan has the Kicks, which is the same platform. It's basically mm-hmm. the same car, but it's a little bit taller with a crossover-ish looking body on it. Uh, but underneath, you know, it's got the same powertrain, the same suspension, the same brakes. It's got all the same features, so it's basically the same car. Same car, yeah. But. Uh, so, and that's a, you know, that's a, a couple grand more expensive. It's about three grand more expensive to start. Um, so there's that if you want that, but if you like it, if you want, you know, cheap, basic transportation, this is one of the cheapest cars, if not the cheapest car. I don't know. I think it might actually be cheaper than the, uh, uh, Mitsubishi Mirage now. Um, and I would definitely recommend this over a Mirage any day. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Not even, it's, not even better, a contest. Better looking, roomier, um, you know gets decent fuel economy. Uh, so the one that I had um, for, they didn't have a Monroney for it, but I priced it out. Uh, let me find the, the page now. The, uh, let's see. Oh, here we go. Total, grand total, $20,745 for the SR. This is the high-end version of, right? the, of the Versa. And the SR, and that gets things like it has... Like an eight-inch touchscreen, I think I remember looking yeah, this up right. There's the Wi-Fi hotspot. Yeah, You've got, I mean, it has. It's not got these like fancy over-the-top features, but it has all the the features that you, the basic stuff that you would want. Like, okay, I've got enough. I feel like my car. I'm not sacrificing just to have a car. Yeah, it has the and features even, that you want. Even the S and the SV trims, you still get a seven-inch touchscreen audio. Yeah, system. so it's not like so, it's some five-inch yeah. little dealio. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, and I it, like the Versa. I think it's, a, I, you know, I haven't driven one in a little bit, but I've driven this generation and it's a vast improvement over the prior one. Um, and I think it exactly what you said. This is a great car. If you have like a kid that's in high school or it needs their own car and you want to have them to have a new car or a kid in college or just having graduated or 
Like if you're a couple or a young person and you're on a budget, but you think I need a car, I don't necessarily need a crossover. I just need a good solid car that's affordable and comfortable and has the features that I can, you know, that makes me feel like I can live with this car for years, you know, for a couple of years without feeling like, good Lord, get me out of it. The Versa is that car. It's a really solid vehicle. You know, it proves, yeah, if you spend forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars in a car, you're going to get all sorts of coolness and all sorts of things get better. But just because you can't afford that or you don't want to afford that, you can still get a decent sedan at a decent price, and that's what the Nissan Versa is. Yeah, you know, it only weighs twenty seven hundred pounds. So even you know, even with that, you know, the hundred and fourteen horsepower is fine. It's it's yeah. more than adequate. Uh, you know, it's not. You know, you're not going to win any drag races with it, but you will be able to easily accelerate, you know, down an on-ramp, you know, to merge with traffic onto the highway and things like that. Right. Um, with the uh, uh, with the CVT, the Xtronic CVT, it's rated at 32 miles per gallon city, 40 highway, 35 combined. I think I was getting about uh, 32, 33 miles per gallon with it, which, you know, is, is great. That's um, good. You really can't complain. Um, on the SR, you do get, you know, the, the 17-inch alloy wheels that are quite stylish looking. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, the if you live somewhere where the pavement is, um, let's say, Boston or Detroit-like, <laughs> um, you, you might want to pass on the SR and, and go for the SV instead, the, the, mid, the mid-level trim. Um, you know, so with, with those 17-inch wheels, um, you get um, 205-50 series um, 17-inch tires. Uh, and those fifties, you know, the, the lower your tire profile, the more risk there is that you're going to, uh, damage that tire when you hit a sharp pothole or something like that. As you have proven. <laughs> as, as, I pro- as I proved, yes. Um, you know, the SV, uh, is on 16s, uh, with 55 inch or 55 series tires. Um, so you got a little more sidewall to work with and the S is 195, 65, 15s, um, which are, you know, that's probably the. The, the safest option um, if you like I say if you live somewhere where the pavement is less than ideal yes so definitely uh, an excellent choice for entry level transportation uh, with a warranty and everything mm-hmm. yeah uh, I like it yeah at Parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Did you know you can support Wheelbearings directly? Head to Patreon.com slash Media and you can become a patron today. Your contributions will help fund the platforms and tools we use to bring the podcast to you. And exclusives and improvements are already on the way thanks to your generosity. So if you want to be part of an automotive podcast like no other, head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia. All right, let's dive into a few of the things that happened this week. Um, so first off, 2024 Polestar 2 gets a mid-cycle update. And in some ways, this is a more radical mid-cycle update than you would typically find, you know, partway through a model cycle for a vehicle. Um, you know, usually, you know, they might, you know, they'll, they'll get, do some slight styling changes. Uh, they might, you know, tweak the engine, give you five more horsepower, things like mm-hmm. that, you know, add some new features to it. Um, and, and they did the, the slight styling update to the Polestar 2 uh, for 2024. So instead of what l- looked like a, an, a traditional grill, um, but was not, um, they've replaced it with a, a solid panel, so it looks more like the uh, the front end of, of what you get on the Volvo C40 or XC40 mm-hmm. um, because, you know, it's an electric vehicle, so it doesn't need that much grill area. Right, there. right. Um, and then the the bigger change is to the, the powertrain, the drive, the, the, the drive system. So previously, there was a dual-motor, all-wheel drive version of Polestar 2 and a single-motor. And both motors were identical, about 200 horsepower, 201 horsepower. Um, and the dual motor, you got one at the front axle, one at the rear axle. If you got the single motor, you got just the one on the front. Uh, and it was front-wheel drive. Now, because this is an EV, <laughs> yes. you have, does engineers have more flexibility to do things without necessarily having to do a huge investment you know, in terms of retooling the vehicle and everything. So now the single for 2024, the single motor Polestar 2 is no longer front wheel drive. It's rear wheel drive. <laughs> Which is a big change. It, it, it is a big change. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it's not that big a change because, you know, if you've already engineered it for dual motors, one at each axle, you know, it's not like you have to, you know, for a traditional front wheel drive internal combustion car, you know, usually the, the engine is mounted transverse, it's sideways. And you've got a transmission and everything that's driving the front wheels. And, and then if you had an all-wheel drive version of it, you'd have to have a place for a drive shaft going down the, the, uh, the center tunnel and all this stuff and the exhaust system. But because it's electric, now it's just, you know, you just have a motor at each end. <laughs> and, and the motors have been changed as well. So instead of two identical motors that were 201 horsepower each, now they have a new rear motor that is now 300 horsepower. So you have, because it's rear-wheel drive, you have better handling because with the single motor because now you don't have the front wheels trying to do steering and acceleration, which can lead to torque steer. Um, it's, more, it's better balanced. Um, and uh, it also comes with a, uh, a slightly larger uh, battery pack, higher-capacity battery pack than it did before. Uh, so it's, uh, gone from, uh, let's see, I got to find it now. Um, it went from 78 kilowatt hour battery pack, which is what you still get 
with the, the dual motor setup, uh, the long range single motor is now 82 kilowatt hours. Uh, so slightly more capacity. And that gives uh, you, that's a 300 mile up to a 300 mile range. Yes. That so is nice. The range nice. goes from 270 miles uh, to 300 miles. And it also has, um, the, because the electronics are changed around, uh, maximum DC fast charging speed is now 205 kilowatts instead of 155. Um, and uh, so you get 299 horsepower, 361 foot-pounds of torque, 0 to 60, about 5.9 seconds. Um, these are all, these are like, it's like there's a whole bunch of shit. Like you said, normally it's like we yeah. change this one little thing and we made the front end look a little different. Okay. This we we made it look a little different, and we did this, and we did it. This is this feels yeah. more like a welcome to the all new. Like it's very very different than what the prior version of it was. And these improvements are all great. Like looking at this on paper, reading down this press release, I'm like nice, 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 excellent. Like this seems like a really good improvement. It makes me want to drive this. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to trying this one out. Uh, yeah, I think this this will be. This would be even more fun to drive than the, the current Polestar 2 is. Right. And they still have the, um, the performance pack uh, where you get 455 horsepower. Uh, zero to 60 time is uh, about 4.1 seconds. Um, that still has, like I said, the 700 or the 78 kilowatt hour battery. Uh, so you get 270 miles of range estimated. Um, so, it, and the other thing you can do if you, if you buy the, if you get the dual uh, motor, the long range dual motor, um, without the performance pack, you can you can get the performance pack as an OTA upgrade after the fact. So if you decide later on that, yeah, 420 horsepower is not quite enough for me. I, I need another 35 horsepower. Uh, you can do that. You can you know just uh, go to go to Polestar and say you know here's my credit card number. You know give me another 35 horsepower. Take my money. Give me horsepower. Yes. Um, so. That you know that that's the twenty four Polestar two. Um, I'm looking forward to trying this one out, um, and uh, I think you know it'll be a nice um, you know a nice appetizer before we get to the Polestar three later yes, in the year. Like a little like a sign of things to come. We've done all these cool things to the Polestar two. Just wait, yeah. just you wait until the three. Because I like Polestar, and they're just. I still feel like a huge number of people, the general public don't know what the heck this car is. Like nobody recognizes the badge. Nobody knows what it is. It sort of has that. You see that and you're like, what, what is that thing? Like I've had people ask me, what was this car that I saw? Like though you saw Polestar, what the heck is that? It still doesn't have a lot of recognition as an EV brand in its own right. And I think that it would be nice if they, that changed. Cause I think it's a solid car. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, the, my still my only com, my only real complaint about the Polestar Two mm-hmm. is um, you know I like the way it looks overall, but the belt line is really high, so when you're sitting in it, you feel like you're sitting down low in the car, okay. like sitting in a bathtub. That's fair, um, and, and you know <laughs> visibility is not ideal. Uh, but aside from that, I, I have no other real complaints about it. Yeah, I really like it. So I'm I, I'm I genuinely when I read through this press release, I'm like this is a whole new car. I am excited to at some point hopefully give this one a go because it's pretty slick. All right. So let's stick with EVs for a minute. Okay. Um, we've talked before about the F-150 Lightning and how Ford offers this uh, intelligent power backup system, uh, which was you know, this one, one of the big things when they, when they first announced the, the Lightning, uh, was it last year? Yeah, last year. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the intelligent power backup system includes a, uh, 
bi-directional charger on the vehicle, the onboard charger. So in, in addition to putting power into it from, from your house to charge the battery, you can also send power out of it to power your home if your power goes out. And so to do that, um, you know, Ford supplies, um, a, a, when you buy the Lightning, they bundle in an 80 amp um, charge station, Ford Charge Station Pro um, to charge the thing. And that has the, the bi-directional capability. Um, and it's, um, it actually, uh, the, the Charge Station Pro actually has a um, CCS connector on it there. Not, not just the standard J1772, not just the AC connector, but it has the two extra large pins that when you go to a DC fast charger, mm-hmm. uh, that they use those for, for sending more power. Because uh, they use that for the bi-directional part of it. So um, that means that if you use the Charge Station Pro, uh, you can't use it with other, uh, with if you have a plug-in hybrid that only has, uh, that doesn't support DC fast charging, you can't use that charger with it because it doesn't have those pins on there. But, you know, for any, pretty much any EVs, you can, you can use that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to, if you want to power your home, if your power goes out, you have to buy this extra box from Sunrun, which is Ford's partner on this. Sunrun does solar installations. And it's basically a, a transfer switch uh, and inverter. Uh, so uh, it's about, uh, I think, was it about four, $4,000 for mm-hmm. the, the home integration box. Uh, and so when you hook that up, then when your power goes out to your house, um, it will automatically flip the transfer switch, disconnect your house from the grid, temporarily um, and power your house from the, ba- the the energy and the battery of the truck until the power comes back on. Then it automatically switches back and starts recharging your truck. Um, cool. <laughs> the guys at Motor cool, Trend cool. <laughs> have uh, a Lightning that they're using for a year-long um, long-term review. And one of their writers, Christian Seabaugh, uh, decided I'd like to get this, this uh, system hooked up in his house. So he reached out to Sunrun to get a quote. Um, yeah, and that four thousand dollars for the home integration box is just for that box. That mm-hmm. doesn't include installation. Yeah. And this is where the problem comes in. This is where everything goes sideways. Very, very, yes. very sideways. A lot depends on your house and the state of the electrical system in your house. If you're if you have an, an older house um, hooking up uh, the home power backup system could be very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Christian Seba's case, he had a house built in the 1950s that still had a 100-amp uh, breaker panel in the house, and he had a detached garage that had overhead power lines you know, to provide power to the garage. Um, Sunrun came back to him with... Uh, an installation estimate of $18,000. That's a car. That's a Versa. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You can buy a Versa SV for that. Not even a base Versa, a, a, a mid-level Versa for eighteen grand. Right. You don't yeah. even look at the base trim. You could step up and get extra stuff. Yeah. Uh, and the reason why, you know, it was $18,000, like I said, you know, the, the Char Station Pro uh, is an 80 amp charger. And, a lot of older homes, you, know, you still have only 100 amp service, mm-hmm. and if you want to hook up an 80 amp charger to a 100 amp breaker panel, 
that's not going to work so well. It's not, not going to work. Basically, not going to have any power left for anything else. In <laughs> yeah. your house. Nothing else is going to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, so, in order to to have this system hooked up, you'd have to replace the entire panel, and you know, upgrade to two hundred amp service. Um, and you know, that's I think that was like something like six thousand dollars to do mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, actually says he would upgrade the panel here. He says for an extra $7,940. Oh. Okay. So $8,000 $8, yep. in this case. Yeah. Uh, and um, when, you know, like when we bought our first house almost 30 years ago now, when we bought it, it still had a 100 amp panel in there. And I had it upgraded to a 200 amp. And I think I paid the electrician back then like about two grand. That's that. actually, I was, I did mine for about the same time. And I think ours was just under two. So that yeah. was about what it cost. Same. So pretty much the same. And yeah. now 8,000. Well, this also, this is in California. So right. you know, That's everything, true. everything's more expensive in California. <laughs> um, but you know, the price of stuff has gone up too. So um, the, you know, the other things you would have had to do is because it currently has an overhead power line going from the house to the garage to supply power to the garage. They would have had to dig a trench and bury the power line to the garage, you know, and then hook everything up in the garage as well. Hook up the the charger and the garage and the integration kit. So all in would have cost eighteen thousand dollars. And you know, reading through this story, you know, this yeah. really is kind of a worst case scenario um, of what it would cost. It, it's hard to see how you know, unless you had nothing but an empty lot and actually had to build the house. <laughs> it's hard to, you know, this is about as much as it's possibly right. going to cost. So needless to say, they opted not to do this installation. Um, but I think for, if you have a newer home, or at least if you have a home that's got 200 amp uh, power uh, and your breaker panel is not, you know, and depending on where your breaker panel is physically located in the house mm -hmm. relative to where your garage is, you know, where, where the truck's going to be. Right. Um, you know, like in my house currently, you know, that the breaker panel is right on the inside of the wall that separates the house from the garage. Yeah. So it's literally drilling one hole through the wall, which is yep. what we what it did had the electrician do last year when I put in a, an outlet in the garage to charge vehicles. Ours is literally in the garage because we have a split. So it's actually oh, in one okay. wall of the garage. So even easier, like it's just, yeah, run that sucker right there. It just ran along the top of the garage and they put in a new spot for a new outlet so we could have the EV charger. But like you said, it, this, his is totally your, like your worst, worst case scenario. This, can it happen to you? A hundred percent. You could have to spend $18,000 to get this installed, but you'd have to have all of these. Everything would have to go wrong. Like everything yes. went wrong for them. If everything goes wrong, you're looking at this. Hopefully most people aren't going to have everything go wrong. You know, it, there's, at least a few of these things will not be an issue for you. So like, this is a worst case scenario, but the reality is this could happen. So it's something that you really need to investigate before you buy something like this and think, well, I'm going to power my house with this. No big deal. Now you've bought it. And it's, Wait just one second. <laughs> I have to pay for another car to make this power my house, you know? So it's definitely something, a cautionary tale of why you should be really sure about what the capabilities of your house as it is right now what it requires to upgrade it to make it be able to do something like this. Yeah. And I mean, even, even if you're just thinking about buying your first EV and you want to charge at home, you know, you, you should definitely take a look at this, at, at this stuff. Um, you know, even if you're not going to do this kind of 
you know, home integration, if, if you just want a 240-volt outlet in your garage uh, to plug into to, to charge your, your EV in a reasonable amount of time, um, you know, that, again, a lot of that is going to depend on how your house is configured. So you, you want, uh, I would definitely suggest, you know, that you um, get an electrician to come in and give you a quote for the cost of, of doing this work. You know, what would it take to, you know, as kind of a baseline, mm-hmm. just to put in a 240-volt, 50-amp circuit, uh, just an outlet in your garage? Because right. you, can, you can buy, like I did, you know, I, I bought uh, a 9.6-kilowatt charger mm-hmm. off of Amazon for 300 bucks, and there it works go. fine. Right. You know, and then I paid $700 to have the, the outlet put in there. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the, the low end. Some automakers, like GM now, is offering um, free charger installation, a free charger and installation mm-hmm. up to $1,500 value when you buy a Bolt uh, or any of their other EVs. Um, so, you know, look for things like that. A lot of utilities will give you a rebate, at least on the cost of the charger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but definitely, you know, before you sign to buy an EV, you know, go get an electrician and figure out what, what you would need to do in order to support charging an EV at home. Uh, Absolutely. I think, I think you'll find, you know, you might, you might, de- you might decide that, yeah, maybe right now, at least maybe a plug-in hybrid or a regular hybrid is a better solution for you, depending right. on where you live, that, you know, this, the condition of your house or the configuration of your house. And at least it'll give you something like if you really are sold on getting, like, I will be getting an EV. I want one. Okay, well, unless you need a car tomorrow, you know, know what it's going to cost to have this installed. And then you can sort of budget accordingly for, okay, this is what it's going to cost to get the car, but we need to have an extra X number of dollars here that we also need to budget in, you know, or maybe your car budget was, I don't know, $50,000 or no, maybe our car budget needs to be 45 because five of that is going to go towards, you know, installing what I need to charge that vehicle at home. It's sort of just investigate it sooner rather than later so that you can plan accordingly. And if an EV isn't, you know, if, if getting what you need to charge the EV is just so cost prohibitive, maybe just going with a hybrid is the right thing. You know, you don't have to buy an EV tomorrow. You can baby steps to the EV lifestyle. If it's not going to work in your current house or it's cost prohibitive, don't do it. You know, just make sure, you know, make sure you investigate it, have an electrician come. I remember our electrician coming out and talking to us about the different options and he was great. This guy came out, it took him 15 minutes. He's like, we can put it here, here, and here. These are your options. This is your cost. If we do this, it's this much. If we do that, it's that much. I recommend this. Okay, I could get 20 estimates, but that guy gave me a pretty good feel for what it was going to cost and what I could do. That's all you need. When when you and Russ brought, bought the Jeep, um, did you have a 240-volt outlet installed? No, or? we had to have one. Well, we had to have one put in because we didn't have one where we needed it in the garage. So he just literally ran it in the garage to, to, to where we wanted it so that we could access it better from, for his car. Um, and I think ours was, I, I think, I, I think all told between the unit and the installation, I feel like we spent just over a grand to do it. Um, part of it was the wire weirdly at the time that we had it installed, you know, thanks COVID all the <laughs> supply chain issues, the, the particular wire that he needs to install it was stupidly expensive at the moment that we were installing. And it even said to him, he's like, do you want to wait? He's like, cause prices could go up or prices could go down. He's like, but you know, and he's like, you know, you could still have a plug in hybrid. You could drive on gas. You could periodically charge it up. It's not like you must charge. And I said, no, just do it. Cause with my luck, if I wait, it's going to quadruple in price next year. So just got it done. But even things like that can affect how much 
it's going to cost to install it. So it's it's absolutely worth just giving your friendly neighborhood electrician a call and saying, can you come out and give me an estimate and, and give me an idea what this is going to cost? Yeah, definitely. Def- definitely always get a quote before you sign for anything. Yeah. All right. Um, next up, uh, the Mazda CX-90. Uh, this is uh, Mazda's new large crossover. Uh, it's replacing the CX-9 in the lineup. Uh, it is going on sale this spring. Um, I was I just got back. We're recording this on Sunday, uh, but you won't hear it before Tuesday when the embargo lifts. Uh, but I just got back from LA yesterday, where we got a, got a preview of it, got to see it. Uh, we'll get to drive it in uh, late March, um, and um, it's uh, you know it is Mazda hasn't has been very light on specific details and, and specs. Um, but they have told us a few things. Uh, so for example, the size, it is longer and wider than the, um, than the CX nine, which, you know, and I had a chance to talk with the, the chief engineer, the program manager, um, and, uh, the chief designer on this thing. And, um, you know, they explained that, you know, the, the biggest complaint that they had from people about the CX nine was, you know, just its size. Uh, you know, for a three-row crossover, it you know it's a little narrow, a little short. The third row was really not very usable. It was very snug. It was yes. a beautiful car, but you that was snug, and it was tough to get back there. Right. So for the CX ninety, you know, they've developed a new platform. Uh, this is their new large platform, um, and they also have a brand new powertrain. Actually, two brand new powertrains for this thing. Uh, one is already being offered uh, in Europe on the CX-60 that debuted in Europe a few months ago. And the CX-60 is um, also based on this architecture, but it's uh, shorter and narrower. Um, we won't be getting the CX-60 here in North America. Um, we will be getting uh, something else. We'll, we'll be getting a CX-70 later in the year, which is, again, a little bit wider, but a two-row, basically a two-row variant of the cx 90. Um, but, uh, the, the, the first new engine is called the eSky active G 3.3 liter inline six turbo. So it's, it's an inline six cylinder as the name implies, mm-hmm. uh, much like the new, uh, Stellantis hurricane, uh, six cylinder that's in the Wagoneer. Um, little, uh, similar displacement, uh, it's a little bit larger, actually 3.3 liters, uh, versus three liters for the Stellantis. Um, and um, it puts out 340 horsepower, 369 foot-pounds of torque. So significantly more powerful than the 2.5-liter turbo that is currently available in the CX-9. Um, and it's no longer transversely mounted. It's longitudinally mounted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also has a mild hybrid system. It's a 48-volt mild hybrid. Um, unlike the, uh, uh, the 48-volt mild hybrid system that Stellantis uses on the Wrangler and the uh, the rams this is not uh, a belted starter generator system this is more like what you get uh with the mercedes-benz and bmw mild hybrids where the um the electric motor is sandwiched between the engine and the transmission uh they don't say what the output of that electric motor is but it's a 48 volt system so it's probably going to be somewhere around 15 to 20 kilowatts Mm -hmm. Uh, so what this will do is it'll enable um, you know, some electric assist, 
um, smoother uh, launches uh, when you use when it has auto stop start. It'll be able to keep the engine off, keep the the uh, gas engine off longer. Um, you know, it should have notably better fuel economy um, as as a result. Um, and then uh, the other powertrain option that is new to this one is a plug-in hybrid. Uh, and like last week or the week before, we talked about the plug-in hybrid system that they're putting on the MX-30, mm-hmm. which uses uh, a small Wankel rotary engine. This is not what's on uh, on this one. This is more traditional plug-in hybrid, like what you find uh, actually in a lot of ways very similar to what's in your, your Jeep Wrangler. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's got uh, an electric motor that is sandwiched in between the engine and transmission, larger, it's a high-voltage motor, um, larger than what's in the... Uh, 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 the um, the the mild hybrid with the uh, the six cylinder, um, the overall power combined power output of the engine and motor is 323 horsepower, and the same 369 foot pounds of torque. So slightly less horsepower, same torque as with the other one. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, Nissan uh, Mazda is not sharing any other details yet. They will share all the rest of those details teasing them out over the next couple of months. I mean, that's a nice chunk of details to start. At least they gave yeah. us a pretty good amount on the, the powertrains, the engines that are in there. So that's that's something. <laughs> uh, oh, actually, I guess there are two other details that I forgot. Uh, the, the the plug-in hybrid, instead of the six-cylinder, has the 2.5-liter four-cylinder that you find in a lot of current Mazdas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a 17.8-kilowatt-hour battery pack. Um, and so the... Um, they they don't tell us they won't tell us yet what the expected range is, but they say it's going to be competitive with the class. And when I kind of pushed them on it a little bit as to well, what is your competitive set? You know, they're looking at kind of more premium three row um, SUVs and crossovers. Okay. So something like say the Volvo XC90 um, or um, the Audi Q7 um, or. Uh, see Mercedes-Benz uh, GLE um, or yeah GLE. Uh, so um, you know with a, a 17.8 kilowatt hour battery, um, you know in this vehicle, it's it's reasonable. To, I think it's going to be reasonable to expect that it'll get somewhere between 30 and 35 miles of electric range, which is decent. Yeah, and you know that will that will handle most people's daily driving. You know with exactly. just electricity. You could just uh, drive around town the whole day and not, I mean, you don't ever yeah. need to use that gas, which is kind of yeah. cool. Yeah. So um, we'll have more details on this um, uh, coming up over the next couple of months. I said uh, we're going to get a chance to drive it uh, the end of March um, and, uh, and try out both of these powertrains at that time. Uh, and then it goes on sale in the spring. Uh, they're not talking about pricing yet, but I think yeah. it's fair to assume that it's going to be you know, a little more expensive than a CX-9. CX-9. Um, okay, you- I have to wait. I have to point out you missed a really important detail in this press release, Sam. So, also being introduced with the CX90 is Mazda's latest, oh gosh, Takuminuri color, Artisan Red. There's yes. a new Mazda Red. I mean, Mazda makes the best reds on the planet. They so, now do. it's the Takuminuri. Am I saying that even right? Takuminuri? I'm uh, sorry. I'm. It looks like that. Artisan Red, I can say, but I don't, I feel yeah, like they, I'm. Yeah, um, yeah, Takuminuri. Takumi Nuri. 
Takumi Nuri. Yeah, that yeah. sounds right. Takumi Nuri color, artisan red. And it's been developed especially to suit the CX-90 with a sophisticated yet deeply saturated color. I'm totally buying into that because I think they do the best reds. <laughs> they do. And, you know, I've, I've, I've long said that, you know, Soul Crystal Red is the, is the best Ugh, color in the automotive gorgeous. industry. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is darker than Soul Crystal Red. It's more, okay. more of a burgundy color. And, you know, depending on the lighting, you know, in, in bright sunlight, you know, you, you definitely see more red. Um, and then in, uh, uh, when, you know, in later in the evening or, you know, when it gets, when it gets a little darker, it's fades to almost black. Um, so it's definitely a much darker red than soul crystal red, but it's still a fabulous looking color. I think it's, and, and I'm think, betting it's the one that they have in the, uh, the photos that they've yes, given us for the yes, reveal. It and it does have more of, it's a deeper, darker, richer red. It looks gorgeous. I mean, these yeah. aren't even in person and the color looks just fabulous. Yeah. For, you know, for a premium, you know, SUV, uh, and you know, they're definitely really focusing on the premium with this thing. Um, you know, there's some, there's some other interesting details on this. Um, like, you know, in addition to the, the color, um, if you look through the, the photos I sent you, Nicole, mm-hmm. there's, uh, there's one where you can see, um, the, the chief designer is holding yeah. a piece of the dashboard. Oh, is so that one, what that is? Okay. Yeah. So one of the options, you know, is this finish on the dashboard. It's a fabric finish. Um, and it's got a, a drop stitch row in the middle of it. Um, so yeah, it looks like two separate segments and then there's, you know, kind of a back and forth thread going back. It's really pretty. If that's segments. a dashboard trim, that could look really slick. I like how yeah. that looks. Mazda just does have the most amazing design team. The details that they put into their vehicles is always, they always look great. So I'm, I'm excited to see some of this live and in person. Cause I don't think I've ever been disappointed by a Mazda interior. They always look sort of like luxury ish. They're always pushing that luxury territory, like technically not a luxury car, but dang, do they come close? Yeah. And you know, the, the maple, you know, the combination of this fabric, uh, covering, and then the maple trim that they have in the, the car that they showed us mm-hmm. uh, really looks fabulous to you. Oh, yeah, there's a picture, I think, of the maple in there, too. Boy, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, you know, because this is a little bit longer and wider than the CX-9, you know, I climbed into the back seat, into the third row. You did? Was it easier I, than the old one? It was much easier nine? than the old one. Easier okay. to get in and out of. And when I was in there, you know, I pulled the, the second row seat back you yeah. know, to, uh, to where it was. And, you know, I had clearance for my knees you sit a little bit lower than i think is ideal um but uh you know i have you know i'm five five eleven long torso my head was clearing the ceiling i had you know at least a couple inches of clearance there so i think you know at, at least two adults can sit back there even though there's three seating positions mm-hmm. two adults could easily sit back there uh without any problem um it's going to be available in six seven and eight row configurations so you'll be able to get it with uh you know center bench seat for three and then three kids in the back uh, or with um, uh, center captain's chairs like they offer today on the uh, on the CX-9 uh, and three in the back or two and two uh, in the, the in the mid in the second row. And do you think the three in the back would be really tight? And the one I'm looking at is a two in the back. It's captain's chairs in the second row and two seats in the third row. The two seats in the third look pretty comfy. Like it looks eyeballing it like a decent amount of space. Do you think if it was three? 
I, I think if it's uh, you know if it's kids, you could easily you know three kids would have no problem back. Then, okay, you know. but not three uh, adults. No, three adults, unless they're either very slim or very friendly, <laughs> um, would probably not be real thrilled to be stuffed into that, back, that third row. Got it. Um, but uh, but definitely three kids would have no problem back there. Cool. Um, and even with the third row, there's also you know some decent amount of cargo space behind. Uh, there's a photo in here. You can see, you know, with the third row up, mm-hmm. you, know, you still have, you know, there's room in there for, you know, at least four or five suitcases, you know, or, you know, lots of gear for the beach yeah. or whatever. Um, so it, there's, you know, because a lot of times with these sort of mid, middle size three rows, um, you know, if you have the, if you're using the third row, you have maybe 12 inches, if you're lucky, behind right. that third row for cargo. This actually has a reasonable amount of cargo space back there. Yeah, that's good. I'm looking forward to this. I always liked the CX-9. I thought it was a solid car. I, I, I've always liked it. I've, I've driven it a couple different times. I remember driving it at the launch and thinking it was just fantastic. I really enjoyed it. So I'm happy to see what they've done going from CX-9 to CX-90. Like what are the, you know, to see the sort of evolution of that vehicle. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think people will be really pleased with this. I mean, obviously a lot's going to depend on how they price it. Right, but you know it'll certainly offer better performance than the CX nine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the plug in hybrid, you know, will be obviously a lot more efficient. Uh, right. I think it'll be a, a good solution for a lot of people. Yeah. So um, yeah, we'll 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 see that one. We'll see more of that soon. Um, okay, and then let's see. Back to the list here. Um, yeah, there, there's another story that I wanted to talk about. We were hoping to have Kelly Funkhauser from Consumer Reports join us today, but uh, unfortunately, uh, she was not able to make it. So um, we will talk about this other story next time. Uh, they did some comparison testing of uh, uh, active driver assistance systems um, and had some interesting results. Yes. Sam and I don't agree with all of them. We were talking before the show. I'm like, I don't know how that got better and how that got worse. We were having an internal discussion about this is right. This is wrong. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, um, while I was out in California, I did have a chance to interview Jeff Guyton, who is the CEO of Mazda North America. And I will include that interview after the, uh, the, Q, the uh, Q&A, the listener Q&A right now, which um, let's answer those questions. And then okay. we'll have the interview with Jeff Guyton at the end. So first up from Andy C in Discord, um, and uh, also a couple, couple people asked uh, if you would be joining the Discord because um, they, they'd like to see you participate in there. Who me? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll send you the link again. <laughs> I'm like, wait, me? I'm reading the thing. I'm like, it doesn't say that. Oh wait, he's talking to me now. <laughs> yeah, no, it, was, it wasn't in the question here. That was just some, something somebody else asked. Yeah, I'll join um, it. All right. Sure. So uh, Andy C. asked, um, see, question for the podcast. My wife currently has a 2019 Kia Niro EV. We originally got an amazing lease on it when it first came out a year, uh, a year pre-pandemic. When the pandemic struck and we were trying to get a replacement vehicle for the, for the last year, looked at the Kia EV6, the VW ID4, and the Hyundai Ioniq 5. She really loves the Ioniq 5, and we've been trying to get it since Oof. February 2022. It's a year. Yeah. The issue, of course, is the astounding markups the dealers have been charging. They have been asking eight to ten thousand dollars above MSRP, which is wow. just stupid. That's um, ridiculous. Yeah. Um, 
Are people actually paying these astounding markups, especially with the recent loss of the tax credit for Hyundai EVs? Uh, we even hired a broker to scour California for Ionic 5, and all he could get was one that was $5,000 or $6,000 above MSRP. And it was sold before we even replied to the broker. Well, I think the fact that you can't find one, unfortunately, answers your question. Yeah, people are paying the markup. And I think it's I think if they don't have to, it's, it's sort of a case of, well, I don't need this today. Let's wait another six months, next wait a year. But if you need a car, like your old car is on its way out or you, it's been totaled or whatever, I mean, what choice do you have? So I think they are, unfortunately, and probably very begrudgingly paying those ridiculous markups. And that'll come back and bite dealers in the butt, though. People remember that. People don't like yeah. it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, next week when the January sales numbers come out, we'll have to take a look and see if, you know, the changes in the incentives have had any impact on Kia and EVs, Kia, Kia and Hyundai's uh, EV sales mm. uh, since they're no longer eligible. They're um, such good cars, though. The, the, yeah. the Ionic 5 and the EV6 are really good. Like, I don't I'm trying to think if I was really hanging on for that, you know, incentive and suddenly it went. Would that be enough to make me say no? I'm not sure it is. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see. I mean, you know, Tesla's dropped their prices on the Model Y and mm -hmm. uh, and the Model Three. Um, you know, Ford, uh, you know, still has uh, in, now has incentives available on on their EVs uh, on the Mach E. So we'll we'll see how how much of any shift there is in sales over the mm -hmm. next couple of months. Um, anyway, f finishing off with Andy, he says we're financially well off enough to pay off the lease. So the Nero EV is now ours, so we're no longer in a rush to get a replacement vehicle. Do you have any insight into the current car market to help us decide when would be a time to pull the trigger to start looking again? There's a lot of buzz about potential, a potential auto sales downturn or collapse um, coming, into the current recession, coming with the current recession and return to normal production. Um, the car broker is still seeing very limited inventory and still well over four dollars to $6,000 above MSRP. Gosh, if I had a crystal ball, I think if we all had a crystal ball, we'd be telling people exactly how long to wait. I don't see this changing in the near future, but the market and how things have been going since COVID, since productions has, has gotten messed up, it seems to flux so much. Six months used to seem like not a very long time. It's a long time now. Who knows what could happen by the end of the summer? You know, um, I, I don't know. What do you think, Sam? When do you think it's going to... The, the, there's still a lot of random supply disruptions yeah. on a variety of components uh, that are they're hitting plants here and there. You know, overall things are slowly getting better, but there there's still there's still disruptions happening. Um, you know, I was just talking to somebody the other day. Um, there's a, a former plant not far from where I am here, um, a former Visteon plant that, uh, that Ford owns the the property and. You know, they use it sometimes for storing vehicles, and over the last couple of years, they've been using it for storing partially finished vehicles <laughs> you know, until they get parts. And I know for, for the last several months, they had you know, several thousand Ford Rangers sitting there. Wow. Um, and I heard from somebody that, uh, that worked at the, the plant where they build the Rangers you know, that they were driving uh, the the people on the line were driving them off the end of the line they were having trouble getting seats and so they were you know <laughs> sticking a milk crate in there sitting on the milk crate to drive them off the line to put them on a truck to bring them over to the storage 
lot here. Man, um, seats. And, like, it's not make, even yeah. chips anymore. It's like we have no seats. That's kind of yeah, a I mean, crucial a, component. That's the thing. It's not, it, is, it isn't, it's, it, it ha- actually hasn't been for a while just chips. It's, yep. it's all kinds of different components. You know, in some cases, they can ship, like GM was shipping some uh, trucks without the, um, the noise he- uh, liner under the hood uh, because they, they couldn't get that material. Um, you know, and in that case, you know, the, the truck still works fine. It's easy for a dealer to install it once they get the parts. Right. Obviously you can't ship a truck to a customer without a driver's seat in it. That would probably be frowned upon by safety folks sitting on a yes, milk carton. Would. I don't think so, they'd go for that. <laughs> no, definitely. Not. Um, so, you know, the combination of still some ongoing disruptions of, you know, variety of components and, um, and the fact that, you know, we've had this going on for a couple of years now means that even with a recession, you know, assuming we have a recession, even with that and some reduction in demand as a result of that, we're still going to be supply constrained mm-hmm. and there's still pent up demand exactly. that hasn't been met over the last two years. So there's probably still going to be best case, you know, a reasonable balance between the supply and the demand for at least another year or two, maybe longer. That's what I would um, think. Now, I think you know we we probably will see you know some of these markups decline and maybe just get back to selling vehicles for MSRP. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't. I think it's going to be a while yet before, at least on popular models, that you can you know negotiate a lower price. But you'll probably be able to start getting some of these vehicles for MSRP, and you know maybe you know like with the Hyundai's and Kias. Um, because they're not eligible for the incentives, uh, you may see dealers start to back off and start to sell them for MSRP. Um, you know, if, if they're seeing customers going for other brands instead where they can get, uh, an incentive. Yeah. I think with those within, within, uh, you know, over the coming months, literally just the coming months, like let's say it's January. So let's say sometime by summer dealers will really have a feel of just how much that losing those incentives are impacting their sales and they might start easing up on those, you know, those extra, you know, amounts they're asking above MSRP. But I think overall it's going to be a long while because there are just so many things. I mean, we still get, I'm sure you do too, Sam, Monroney's that are like this, you know, credit for this because this isn't included credit Mm -hmm. for that. But there's still things. And when you go to build cars on almost every OEM site, you'll look at the car and you'll click on the trim and it'll say, you know, there's like a sort of a caveat. This is what it's supposed to be. But depending on when yours was made and, you know, check and make sure what yours is because the one you literally get at the dealership may not have what you think it has because, that day we were short on this this day we were short on that and they're shipping things and not hiding it but they're shipping things with various bits and pieces not on it in the interest of well let's ship the car rather than have this sit here for six months waiting for this one little feature just let's remove this feature from this trim give people a discount slightly on it so they're not paying for something they're not getting so we're still seeing that i don't see the the demand has not gone down enough and the supply chain hasn't stabilized enough for that for the the extra they're charging to go down anytime soon. Hold on to the the Kia Nero EV that you have for a little bit longer, I think is what we're saying. And the other thing um, that uh, I actually did respond to Andy in uh, Discord about this, uh, I did a little uh, searching um, here in the Midwest, you know, in Michigan and Ohio area on inventories. And at least based on what they're posting on their websites, you know, uh, for inventory, 
dealers, uh, Hyundai dealers in Michigan and Ohio are, don't seem to be charging markups on the Ionic 5. Hmm. Um, so, you know, even though you had a broker that was looking all over California, you might want to consider, um, you know, looking at other parts of the country. You know, obviously California is the, the big market for EVs in the U.S. Uh, but, you know, look outside, look a little further away. You might find it worthwhile, you know, if you can find a dealer, you know, across the country that is willing to sell you the car for sticker, um, you know, it might be worth spending 500 bucks on a plane ticket to fly there well, and, you and know, drive it back. I can vouch. You can do a pretty handy road trip in a Kia EV6 if you're looking to do that. So yeah. <laughs> go fly out there, have a vacation someplace else for a couple of days and make that part of the trip driving it home again and, and have some fun with it. Yeah. And learn about the charging infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question from Jay Donsback. Uh, this was also came, came through from uh, Discord. Uh, Volvo's calling their gas models mild hybrids. When does the electric assist, i.e., how do they compare with a Toyota hybrid like a RAV4? Is it just marketing smoke <laughs> and mirrors? So uh, it's not entirely smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. um, you do get you do get some assist with a mild hybrid. So you know systems like the the Toyota or um, Ford hybrid systems or what Honda is doing. You know, these are high voltage hybrid systems. They use high voltage batteries, anywhere from, uh, you know, two to 400 volts, uh, battery systems, um, and more powerful electric motors, uh, which means that they can do some driving, some limited amount of driving on electricity alone. Um, and, uh, they, you know, it can also, under certain circumstances, you know, if you're driving down the highway, if it's under light load, if there's some charge in the battery, it could shut off the engine and just coast, you know, and then just use the electric motor to keep you going for a while. Um, they call that sailing mode. Um, you can do that with these higher power, higher voltage hybrid systems, like what Toyota offers. The uh, mild hybrids, those are 48-volt hybrid systems. So they are... Um, you know, it's lower voltage, so, you know, it doesn't require as many safety features, you know, to protect against electrocution as you would have with a high-voltage system. Um, it also means you have lower power motors. There's different configurations of mild hybrids. We, t we were talking about the CX-90 earlier, um, and, you know, uh, Audi and BMW have mild hybrids where uh, it's what's known as a P4 configuration where the motor is packed between the engine and the transmission. Um, those can do more assist. Um, and, you know, for example, you know, one of the things you can do with that type of configuration is when the car comes to a stop, shuts off the engine, uh, you can actually shut off the engine, you know, when you're down to about two or three miles an hour and have it shut off and be shut off for, you know, as much as several minutes, um, when you're sitting at an intersection. And then when you go to accelerate, it will actually start moving the car with the electric motor, um, and then turn on the engine when you you know, once you've hit two or three miles an hour. Uh, so when you do that, you know, that transition from engine off to engine on tends to be much smoother. It's much mm -hmm. more transparent. You don't really notice it as much. Um, there's also the other main type of mild hybrids are using what we call a belted starter generator. It's basically a fancy alternator. Um, and um, the, you know, so the, uh, it generates the power, you know, so it's driven off the engine by a belt. Um, it, uh, it can 
generate the electrical power that your car needs uh, for the ignition and all your accessories and everything when, when you're driving. Uh, but it also has a, an extra idler pulley on there that allows it to actually drive that belt uh, sometimes and uh, put some torque, uh, provide some torque assistance to the engine. So in the case of, for example, um, Chrysler Stellantis on the Ram uh, V8s, on the 5.7-liter Hemi V8, they have their e-torque system, which is this type of mild hybrid. And what it can do is the, the, the BSG will provide some torque assist to the engine. And when, you know, if you're climbing a slight grade, for example, the engine also has uh, cylinder deactivation. It can provide some assistance to allow the engine to stay in four-cylinder mode instead of switching back to eight-cylinder mode. Um, there's different there's different ways that they use use it and configure it. The Volvo system is a BSG system, so it provides you know more capable auto stop start. It'll stay the engine will stay off longer um, when it does restart. It restarts more smoothly than a 12 volt system, um, and it's it's more transparent when it's turning on and off. Uh, and, you know, it'll add a little, you know, add, you know, maybe one or two miles per gallon, uh, to your fuel economy. So it's not a lot, but, you know, every little bit helps. And it's a, those systems are relatively low cost. Um, the, the system that Mazda is using is a little bit more expensive, a little more capable, but it's not entirely smoke and mirrors. Yeah. It's not like a hybrid hybrid, but it's, it is, they are telling you something mild hybrid is a thing. It exists. (laughs) All right. Um, anything else you want to talk about today, yeah, Nicole? That's, that's all I got, Sam. That's all right. it. Well, then let's uh, say goodbye and make sure you, uh, if you're listening, keep listening uh, for my interview with Jeff Guyton from Mazda. Uh, we talk about kind of where Mazda is going. Did you know that Mazda actually sold more cars last year in the U.S. than they did in 2019? Despite really? the supply chain disruptions? Yeah. That's kind they had of their unbelievable. Best sales ever. Really? That's impressive. Yeah. Did yeah. they say, I, I'm, I'm shocked. I mean, they, I'm shocked. Yeah, me too. I wow. Was. Go Mazda. So, <laughs> so, so listen to my interview with Jeff and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye everyone. Bye. All right, Jeff. So uh, you're relatively new to this role at, uh, at Mazda. Um, and what, I guess, what was the, what's the overall philosophy around the CX-90? What, what were you trying to do differently with CX-90 compared to CX-9, uh, and how were you trying to evolve in the segment? Okay, so CX-9, um, I, I personally think CX-9 was a great driving car, is a great driving car, and has many great characteristics, but for the U.S. market, um, the knock on it was always that the package was too small. And... Um, and so, obviously, we needed to remedy that. Uh, and having said that, you know, 2022 was the best-selling year, best sales year for CX-9 ever. Uh, so, but it still didn't reach the kind of share and the kind of presence that we have with CX-5 or even CX-30 in their respective segments. Partly because of the package space, partly because of power or at least the perception of power. I never felt like CX-9 was underpowered, um, but there is that. And also, in that segment, there's a, a great deal of importance on towing. So we addressed the power, the towing, and the package 
with CX90, um, with that all-new platform and those new powertrains. So CX90, um, is that going to be a North America-only vehicle, or is that going to be a global vehicle? So CX90 itself will be focused on, well, focused on North America and selected other markets where the roads and the parking spaces and all of that fit fit well with that product. <clears throat> there are four brothers on that large platform, 60, 70, 80, 90. And the 60 has gone on sale in Europe and Japan. It is dimensionally narrower and shorter than CX-90, and it's a two-row product. Um, and it's that's the right dimensions for those markets, whereas 90 and what will be 70 will be the right dimensions for the U.S. So 70 is something that's also coming to North America? 70 will come to North America. Okay. Um, in, in determining kind of what powertrains to put in here, uh, you know, the, the new power, both new powertrains, the, the six-cylinder <laughs> and the plug-in hybrid, are both significantly more powerful, a lot more torque than what you had before. Yes. What was, what was the thinking there in making those decisions and, you know, in 2023, doing an all-new six-cylinder engine like that, um, some might consider uh, an unusual choice, given where some of the market, a lot of the market's going right now. Um, I think the, the six-cylinder allowed us to do several things. One, <clears throat> it allowed us to have a competitive level of power, as well gave us the capability to tow. The layout also gave us the space to build in the plug-in. So within the, the length, it's obviously got the four-cylinder in, in front of the, the, the plug-in technology, but overall that package gave us the space to put in this, the i6 and offer that power and towing. So the four-cylinders mounted a little bit more forward, like to work towards where the front of where the six would be? Uh, that's my understanding. Okay. Well, you can ask Wakiya-san, but that's my understanding. It is, it's there, and then the plug-in hybrid motor sits behind and between the engine and the transmission. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I guess, why, why, a six, why an inline six as opposed to a V6? Well, what we can see is that the I6 has really perfect balance. And it also afforded us a number of advantages in the platform, in the way that we package the suspension, in the, the steering angle that we can afford with that as well, so that it's more maneuverable. Um, and, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so what do you, what do you see as the competitive set for CX-90? You know, over the last half dozen years or so, you know, Mazda, as a brand, uh, at least in North America, has shifted up market, yeah. you know, to a much more premium sure. uh, kind of, you know, mainstream premium or premium, you know, you know, from from where it was. Um, and who are you targeting with a car like CX90? You know, for different different attributes, we look at different competitors rather than a single competitor. Um, and what I'm really focused on is being relevant and competitive in the segment and, and hopefully taking an unfair share of that total segment, which is 
not quite as large as the compact segment where CX-5 sits, but it's still pretty big, and it's growing. And so having a really competitive entry in there, um, hopefully we take share from lots of people. I guess uh, where I'm really getting at is um, what is what is that segment for the CX-90? Is it the likes of Hyundai Palisade, Kia Telluride, uh, or is it even... You know, maybe aspirational, a little further up market to something like Volvo XC90. Well, I think the um, I think the customers in that segment look at lots of entries, and so we're going to try to appeal to a broad broad spectrum. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, that 2022 um, you actually sold more vehicles than you did in 2019 yes. pre-pandemic in North America. Uh, which I think is pretty much unique in the industry. There's only a handful. Yeah. Um, how, you know, what did Mazda do? You know, how was Mazda able to achieve that when everybody else was struggling to get parts, you know, as, as a relatively smaller player? Well, I mean, you know, we struggled too. Um, but what we were able to do, uh, there, are several, there are several things going on, right? One, and I talked about the, the upgrades to our dealer network. But what's more important maybe than the facilities themselves is how that has improved the relationship between the dealers and the brand. It has never been stronger, both quantitatively and qualitatively. Um, the surveys we see and so forth, dealers are very optimistic about their the value of their franchise and the the uh, relationship with the brand. And what that has done, and part, well, and part of the reason for that, has been that through the course of the pandemic, we really tried very hard to improve the communication. And that sounds like some words, but you know, if you go talk to Jimmy Shearer, who is the chairman of our, our dealer council, you know, I think he would probably say that... Um, uh, that he has not experienced that kind of communication with other manufacturers. So when it was good news, we told them good news. When it was bad news, we told them the bad news. And we kept up a regular dialogue so they knew what was coming. They knew what was going to be on their lots. And so they could prepare and, and turn over vehicles very quickly for customers. So they were able to make the most out of the be it constrained supply we could give them. So it sounds like transparency between Mazda and its dealer network was, yes. was a key. Um, one of the you know, one of the big things. I mean, there are other factors well, to yeah. but that's yeah. yeah. One of the interesting things you know over the last three years, um, you know, as we went through lockdown and, and post lockdown period, a lot of automakers were trying to push. To more of an online sales model, uh-huh. trying to t- trying to digitize the whole yeah. sales process, um, and and you know other you know even before the pandemic, you know we've seen manufacturers experiment with some different models, you know trying mm-hmm. to do some things around subscription. Mm-hmm. What um, you know what if anything is Mazda doing, and you know kind of what are you looking at to evolve the sales experience for your customers and for your dealers. Yeah. So, um, 
probably every manufacturer you talk to talks about omnichannel. But for us, you know, we want to enable a sale to a customer the way they want to do it. Um, having said that, we still believe that there's great value provided by our newly outstanding dealer network to uh, provide service and uh, the face of Mazda, trust in the brand, availability for any problems that might happen, and so forth, so that um, we can enable a digital sales experience. People can configure the vehicle. People can find out how much it's going to cost. People can find out what inventory is available. But in our experience, people also want to be able to trust that they can reach out to somebody and get a problem fixed or understand the new technology in the car or whatever. Um, and that peace of mind, if you have a good dealer network, and that peace of mind is valuable. Um, <laughs> trusting dealers is something that seems to become much harder for a lot of consumers over the last couple of years, um, you know, with you know, because of constraint supplies. Um, you know, we've seen dealers doing a lot of shady things, you know, dealer markups, you know, um, but you know, selling cars out from under a customer to right. somebody else have. Have you has Mazda experienced your your network? What I would say, at least, the feedback that we've had, is that our encouragement of the network to focus on the loyalty opportunity going forward. So we have we have a lot of new product right now. We have a huge investment in the dealer network, and it's good. We have a new financial services provider, which is also really good. So there's a lot of opportunity to build a really good business here. And our, our coaching was, you know, let's invest for the long term. That's what we're all doing. So don't be doing, as you said, shady things. Don't be doing shady things today that mean that the customer isn't coming back to you the next time. So keep your eye on that, guys. And... They, I think, responding to the transparency and other things, the relationship with the brand, I think their behavior has been pretty good. That's the feedback I've had. Okay. Um, looking forward, uh, as you get more and more electrified, you know, you've got the MX-30 out there, you've had you know, limited volume in California. Now, presumably, the, the plug-in hybrid CX-90 will be considerably more available than that one was. Mm -hmm. And down the road is you have other electrified products, whether they're plug-in hybrids or, or battery electric. Mm -hmm. um, one of you know one of the challenges for traditional dealers is education. Um, and getting them prepared to deal with these vehicles and, and help their customers understand, you know, and make the right decision for you know for what that customer actually needs to pick the right solution for sure. their needs. Sure. Um, How is Mazda working with its dealers to get them ready for the future? So we have, <clears throat> internally, we, we have 
um, we talk about three phases to our electrification program. This is this is the first. The end point obviously will be a kind of skateboard platform, dedicated EV architecture, and so forth. And the our dealers are going on the same journey. So almost, I would say, practically every dealer across the country is prepared for plug-in CX-90. And they've had the training, or are getting the training right now, because we'll be on sale in the spring. They get the training, the facilities are in place for, for this kind of electric product, um, and the relative penetration that it will have in the in the uh, in the portfolio, so they're ready for that to be able to guide people. Do you want a more traditional gasoline engine? Are you ready for an electrified product like a plug-in and so forth? They've got that. Um, so we're not uh, we're not running past our blockers, <laughs> if you will, on that one. Um, and I think they're in pretty good shape. Okay. Um. With um, you know, with technology in general, automotive technology in general, uh, you know, one of the things that I've seen, you know, I've heard from other people, you know, is the dealer. You know, one one of the problems that we've long had with dealers in, in the U.S. or in North America is a lot of turnover among the retail staff, um, and they it's it's hard to get people to get retail people to explain to customers what the technology is in the vehicle, whether it's the propulsion system or, you know, the safety systems in the car. And, um, you know, often, you know, people drive away with their new vehicle. They don't necessarily really understand what they've got. Um, and are you trying to get your dealers um, better trained to understand the, the full spectrum of the technology in the vehicles they're selling? Yes, and so there's a quite a huge effort in our in our shop to do that. And um, actually, a number of years ago, we started a dedicated team for training people about brand and product. So it was a and culture. So it it's really very much integrated across all of those things and we have a quite robust uh, platform for training our staff uh, including even gamification uh, among the network to get people ready for explaining all of those new things. Turnover is clearly an issue in the industry but um, what we understand is that people who come to work in those now RE retail evolution facilities, they feel different. And they are much more engaged with the Mazda brand than ever before. So um, we see the, the satisfaction with their efforts quite, quite high. What uh, do, do you have a estimate of what percentage of CX-90s you expect will be plug-in hybrid versus the six-cylinder? You know, it's a moving target, but I'm guessing about 20%. Okay. And is that going to be available nationally or regional? Uh, 
less pressure. I do expect, obviously, much greater penetration in California and less in other, other states. Okay. Um, anything else about Mazda, what it's doing today, where it's going in the next few years, kind of what your your overall philosophy for the brand is or, or the products that, uh, that we should be thinking about? Um, I think, you know, if I come back quite philosophical now, where we want to go as a brand and where we want people to think initially internally, but then hopefully externally also, is and I want to I want to enrich the lives of those we serve. And there's a lot in that statement for people because I want the service aspect. And I don't mean fix it when it's wrong. I mean we serve people. And I want to make them feel good. I want to enrich them. And I can enrich them through great design. I can enrich them through safety, dedication to safety. I can enrich them through various bits of technology. Um, I can also be a partner in local communities. And we've taken some steps in that area. Um, A few years ago, during the pandemic, we offered oil changes to healthcare workers, regardless of what brand, for free. We had more than 50,000 people come. Two thir- three quarters of them were not Mazda customers. So they came, they had a great experience with Mazda. Hopefully, we gave them something that was valuable to them. Um, but they saw us for the first time. I think that's important, not only as a promotion, but as something warm-hearted. And we want to do a lot more in that space going forward. So this umbrella of enrich the lives of those we serve is not just about the product and not just about the dealership experience, but it goes further than that. So yes, we expect to grow our sales. Yes, we expect to make money and all of those things. But this aspect is something I, I want to see grow in this market. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Glad to talk with you. Great conversation. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.